Well, hello. Welcome back to our midweek Bible study. And we ended last time just before the, the verses that are often used to try to keep women in a uh, subjugated position in a church and, and in society. And this is a very important thing we have to deal with. Uh, so let's just put it this way. We're going we're gonna to read the scripture, and then we're going to come back and talk about what it means and how we can work with all of this, all right? Uh, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 35, uh, 34 and 35, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. As soon as we hear that, people say, well, that settles that then. You know, women, sit down, be quiet. And in my church, that's what they did. Um, reading a lot of material coming out of the Southern Baptist and Independent Baptist churches makes me think it was even worse there. It might still be. Um, I think it still is, if I'm understanding correctly. But I can remember um, that women's events would sometimes have a man come in to do a class during their women's retreat, their event. And I would be asked uh, as a young minister and then made to sit in a room all on my own because if I entered the room, then they were no longer allowed to speak, pray, or lead a song because a man was there and the man has to do it. So I'd come in and do my part and then they'd usher me out so that they could also sing and pray again. And even as a young man, I was thinking, all right, I know what the Bible says and it seems exceptionally clear, but this also doesn't look like Jesus or sound like Jesus. And it doesn't match with the way Jesus treated people. And later on, I'd start finding out more. So I'm gonna ask you to let me do something here. We're reading the New Testament books in the order in which they were written so that we can understand how doctrine was rolled out to the early church. And because of that, I've tried hard not to lock in on a particular subject that would drag, make us drag our feet. But this one is so important. I think we need to take a look at this again. It, it is painful to admit, but scripture is not always easy to interpret. And I once heard a, um, an elder of a church's wife say about a very contentious issue. Uh, where scriptures could be looked at one way or the other, but not by her. And she said, no, that no, God would not give us something hard to understand. And that just made my jaw hit the floor. Um, if you honestly can read Ezekiel and then say, got it, like, come on, easy. And if you can do that with Leviticus, if you can do that with Revelation, and if you can, um, you can harmonize Romans and James without even thinking about it, it you can only do that because you weren't thinking about it. Scripture isn't always easy. Cultural matters do enter into the text, and weeding them out can be a very difficult process. If you're trying to find a command, you first of all have to get past the culture. You have to get past the situation. You have to understand it all. You're not, you're not ignoring it. In fact, you are absolutely understanding the context, the culture, situation so that you can then see, is there anything here that speaks to us? And to be honest with the text, you also have to deal with what is temporary and what is eternal, what is cultural and what is a divine command. And frankly, it is dishonest to act as if 
all scripture was written to all people at all times and the rules laid out plainly. For example, the list of qualifications for elders differs in Timothy and Titus. We've already looked at that as we've worked our way through six. Uh, and Timothy went to easier places. And so Paul said that the elders had to have children that were believers. Titus went to hard places. He went to Crete, for example, where Paul told him elders' children shouldn't be accused of riot. I mean, that's a, that's a huge difference there. And yet in my religious tribe, we routinely merged the two lists and acted as if God had given us only one. It's, it's dishonest. We need to be honest with scripture, even when it terrifies us. Um, Paul told T Titus, everybody where he worked was, was a glutton and a liar. All the Cretans are hyperbole, um, making a point. But does that mean that God says all Cretans are gluttons and liars? I would hope that you're not saying that. We need to understand the culture, the situation, who said it, and to whom they said it. Did Paul know that people 2,000 years later would be reading his mail to Titus? That's very doubtful. There are times Paul wrote where he was quite aware what he was writing came from God, and that was an instruction to the church where he was. But there are other times it's very clear that that's not what was going on. So what is going on in one of these most famous passages? And we'll look at the others as well. Are, are they um, limited? Are they cultural? Or are they eternal commands that are uh, to be interpreted and strictly applied? <clears throat> well, here is where I'm gonna go with this, all right? And by the way, we do have a better microphone I'm hoping that you're not picking up the noises outside. I decided to record at home today because at the office, uh, the light can be a bit harsh, but mainly the air conditioner, the AC is loud. They keep it cold, they have to. There are a bunch of computers there that do big things. But that noise has bothered some of you and especially those of you with hearing difficulties. So I'm hoping you're not hearing that every neighbor of mine has decided to fire up all of their lawn equipment Normally, I can make that happen by stepping out on my back deck to read quietly, but this time, they must have known I turned the microphone on, so I'm hoping it goes all right. Um, when Jesus came, what did he change? The correct answer here would be everything, and yet we don't act like that. In fact, sometimes people are trying to shove Jesus back into the temple. He changed everything, and now... According to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter, um, what was that, 5? Now I've just lost it. 2 Corinthians, everything has changed about us. We no longer look at anyone from an earthly position or perspective, Paul said. No one. And then he goes very, very firm on it in Galatians 3.28 when he said, there is no longer Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave or free. It's gone. Jesus came it changed everything. I've had people say women need to be subjugated because they sinned first. Well, Paul did say that in Timothy, but he also said in Romans that it's through Adam that all sin has come into us. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure that sin was a team effort and that a point being made isn't a point at all. But they will go back and read in Genesis and say, look at the curse. 
She is to be under the husband and her desire is to be for him. There's some translation things there we can work with. But let's say, let's say you're right, that she came under a curse. And so did the man. He was cursed by having to make a living by the sweat of his brow, which would mean um, that man is under a curse to the earth and that women were under a curse to the man. So when Jesus came, what did he do with curses? He removed them. Jesus didn't come to validate and restate the curses. He came to save us, to change our lives, to change everything. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, and, and this, is in, this is elsewhere as well, but in Mark chapter 9, 42 through 45, Jesus says that among his people there will be no one who lords it over another one. And he didn't say, no, I, I, I just mean among you guys. No. He said, and the, my people will not have anyone lording it over another and claiming it is for the other's benefit. Mark 9, 42 through 45, read it. We use expressions sometimes in, in religious tribes. Um, uh, the man that gets up, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this in a very traditional way, all right? So I'm not going to say man or woman. The man who got up to lead the songs was leading songs. I always found that to be an interesting term. Now, I know they're singing lead, and in that sense, one could be leading. It doesn't work with the other parts. You're not basing altoing but you are singing the lead, but you're supposed to all be singing at the same time. And we didn't use instruments in our churches. I was raised to believe it was a sin. I have since read more scripture. Anyway, they would even do, and it's not like crossing yourself, but that was for four, four time. You know, and they would have hand motions that were helpful. I'm not making fun, really. It's just a relic of the past to most people. Uh, it, it, they would keep the time, in which case they were leading. But really, they're not authoritative in any true sense of the word of leadership. It was more of a, they're assisting or participating or helping us together. But, you know, all right. That leading smacked a little bit of leadership, and that caused us a problem. So we couldn't have women a song or women even stand up to do one song like a solo. There were no solos, no choruses allowed, and women couldn't sing a song because that would be teaching us, because we were told that songs teach us. And Colossians would agree that when we sing, we are teaching each other. At the same time, a man would get up and lead a hymn, and I'd look down, and it was written by Fanny Crosby, as hundreds were. And I thought, well, wait, she's teaching us but I was afraid to bring it up because then we'd have to rip out more of our songs. Uh, we were very, very strict on this thing. Um, we would even put X's through songs uh, when we got a new song, but saying that that was not theologically correct. It, it was a, it, it was an interesting childhood. But the thing is, I share that with millions of people, not only in my religious tribe, but in many others. And so we would, we take communion every Sunday, and back in the days pre-COVID, you would sit down and a tray would pass you. And you would take the tray from the person sitting beside you. But of course, the trays have to get there. So up front would be the men. And the men would say the prayer. And then they solemnly hand each other the trays. And then they would go past them down the aisles. 
women weren't allowed to do that. Not just the standing up front doing the prayers and such, but they weren't allowed to pass it. Why? Well, that's a leadership position. Excuse me? If the Lord's Supper is a meal, then it is the only meal we won't let women serve. Which, since it's supposed to be a meal and a fellowship gathering, I got all kinds of problems with that. Plus, why is it that a woman can pass me a tray if she's sitting beside me, but not if she's standing beside me? And all of these things tied us up in such knots. It was, it was ter terrifying. It was awful. And women were kept quiet. In some churches where I grew up, they couldn't even pass out bulletins. I mean, seriously, that's how bad it got. The Bible tells us that we're all gifted. And yet there are people that try to use the, uh, the gender used by Paul in Romans 12 to say, no, if you look at them, every one of those, those uh, pronouns there, and every, every, these are all male, he and him, in the, in the gift thing, showing that they don't know how language works. In many languages, including the one Paul was writing in, if you have a group of 20 women and three men, you still address the group in male terms. Again, history, culture, uh, I don't like it either, but there it is. In Spanish class, when I was studying that in university, um, they, they would tell us, if you have a room of 200 people and they're all women and one man comes in, you're to switch the gender to this. Now, I don't know that they still teach that. I'm wondering if there'd be a riot at the university, but that's the way the rules work in many languages. Paul wasn't excluding women. In fact, if you read Romans 16, just a few chapters after that, and make a list of all the women and what they were being named for, you find that the women in that chapter far more often than the men were being named and praised for their work in the ministry, in the church. So Paul wasn't excluding women. He was just confined to the rules of his language. Any arguments based upon English words and their forms are useless. Um, long time ago, somebody wrote the Greek New Testament is the New Testament, all else is translation. And yeah, that, that is correct, but we do have variants. And you do need to know that the passage I just read to you is one of those variants. We have a lot of manuscripts where that little passage is moved. It's higher in the chapter, it's over in this other chapter. And that would normally send up a red flag to me and say that was added. Somebody plugged that in. But there are no manuscripts that I know of where it doesn't exist somewhere close by that passage. So that isn't it. By the way, do a, do a little trick. Start reading in chapter 11, read all the way through chapter 14. Just skip those two verses. It flows much easier. So this is a sign. We've hit something which disrupts the narrative, which seems out of place. What would that be? Well, what is 1 Corinthians? Paul is responding to a series of arguments, assertions um, made by, or questions sent to him 
by this incredibly mixed up, crazy mess of a church in Corinth. And so he speaks to it. We've already seen some. So it's one of the more stark ones in 1 Corinthians 7, when he says, now the things of which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But I say to you, let every you know, a woman have her husband and every man have his wife. So it's obvious there. Uh, he made it very obvious by saying, Look, we're going to go over your list. And here's one of your statements. Here's my response. Now read that passage. See where it is. What you think's going on. By the way, let's be very, very careful about applying things forcefully out of Corinth. I've already done a, a, a class here on chapter 11, first part. Um, if, you, if you missed it, it's under 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, part one, just a few weeks back. And we talked about hats in here. We teach that this is not to be talk, uh, treated as a, as a command. We don't always require women to cover their hair. In fact, Christians are, are often very, you know, give very harsh looks when they see a Muslim lady coming in with her hair covered. It's, you don't need to do that, by the way. Uh, you can be friendly, you can love. Um, anyway, we don't tell them, no, you can't be praying because um, you, you don't have your, your veil on. We understand that 1 Corinthians 11 is not to be taken literally and as a command for all churches. At the same time, most churches do want men to take off their hats, but even that is pretty much gone. If you're under 50, you're going to find that hats will be in the, um, in the area and worship, and that men do not feel the need to take them off to pray. Why? Because the cultural move has moved from that. It doesn't mean disrespect anymore, and it didn't in chapter 11, but back when I was a boy, it was treated as law by several of our churches, even though we were far to the right, we did not go as as some churches that required women to have this little thing on their head. It wasn't really a hat. Some of them wore hats, but mostly they wore, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm sorry, I just don't know the name. Like a doily, a lace thing on the back of their head. Um, we didn't do that, but we did want men to take off their hats and we did say that chapter 11 says that men can't have long hair. And we define long by pretty much anything other than what I'm wearing right here. Uh, in our Christian universities, hair could not touch our ears or our collars or our eyebrows. Yeah, that was in the rules. And back then, no facial hair either. But most, as far as I know, all of them have changed their rules now. So in other words, we're not taking that literally as a law for all churches. Well, what about chapter uh, 14? 14 uh, verses 33 through 35. Uh, the spirits of the prophets and all this other, it's God's not a prophet, of, uh, a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord people. Women should remain silent in the church. They're not allowed to speak. Now, is this a contradiction to chapter 11 where women prophesied and prayed? Because in there he says, you're not to prophesy or pray with your head uncovered. Prophesy or pray. They're doing that. So how do we handle this? Is chapter 11 and chapter 14, are they in battle? Are they in contradiction? Well, no. Um, 
but people have really twisted themselves to try to make it still form a, a very traditional anti-women sentiment. I've heard many times preachers say, well, the Bible never contradicts itself. Therefore, the in chapter 11, this prophesying and praying had to be in small groups of women only. But in mixed groups, chapter 14 applies. And if there's a man there, they can't do anything. Um, no, you don't have any, any evidence that in one they were in a public setting and in the other they weren't. And you might, I've had people say, yes, but it's a necessary inference. No, it isn't. There are a whole lot of other inferences we can get out of this. And I hope that that's something we can work on because we're going to be stuck here for a couple of weeks at least. All right. Uh, and then we'll move on for, um, if you have questions, we'll come back to it. And I'm moving a lot of paper around because I'm not, I don't want to do, um, I don't want to turn this into a 10 week class. And so if I don't have notes to move me along, I chase rabbits for far too long. Right. Um, it is helpful to notice that this is not the first silence command in Paul's sermon on appropriate worship behavior. He's already commanded that the tongue speakers and prophets be quiet out of respect for each other. What's that? Same chapter. In fact, the word, same word, sagato, which is a word which means to, to cease speaking immediately. In less polite terms, shut up. He uses that when speaking of women in this passage. In both instances, the meaning is the same. When you're being disruptive. When you're being disruptive. Okay, you probably aren't convinced yet. Fair enough. But in Corinth, if we look at all the, the material we've got from history and from these letters, we know that Corinthian women were known for being loud in your face, a little overbearing, um, in fact, the Romans even had an expression to, to act like a Corinthian. Paul is saying, when someone else is talking, be quiet. When someone else is going, let's take turn. Let's, if you have issues and you don't understand, you can talk to your husbands at home. Um, and again, what if you're not married? And so is this a rule that if you're single, for example, you can never have your questions answered? That you must, um, how do you, how would you even do that in writing somehow? So, and in a humble spirit, so that nobody thinks you're challenging them. Paul is calling both women and men to a very high behavior standard in the Corinthian letter, and they're having a hard time getting it. It is even possible here, um, I would say to you, even somewhat probable, that he is talking about more. He's talking about what they said to him, like he did in 1 Corinthians 7. And there are many other, like in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, before he gave instructions about the Lord's Supper, he said, this is all very disruptive. Remember what it's all about. And here, you know, not to speak, you know, ask your own. And then he goes, did the word of God originate with you? Now, that's interesting. That has... That seems to have no connection to what has just been said if Paul was giving an instruction to all the churches for all time. But what if he was reading one of their attestations, one of their statements of doctrinal truth? Then this, this passage that immediately follows it, 
makes a lot more sense. Did God originate with you? Are you the only people it reached? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. How can they prophesy if they're silent? We're not going to have a mime ministry here, are we? No. I think he was responding to something the Corinthians were saying. And so he goes, when you be eager to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Or as the older version said, and we were always pounded over the head, decently and in order. And my growing up decently in an order was brought up whenever anything happened that the people in charge didn't like. No, no, must be de- you know, We couldn't applaud at a baptism. We couldn't, we couldn't applaud at anything. Uh, we couldn't clap along with the song. No, no, decently in an order. Um, <clears throat> there's a misuse. There's a misuse of, of scripture. I'm going to just do a little bit more here, and then I'm going to bring this to a close for this week. The word speak here in chapter 14 has already been used 20 times in that chapter to deal with tongues and prophecy. Connect that to the instruction about questions and not being disruptive. And it would seem to indicate that if Paul was writing it as one of his statements, that women were being very disruptive. They were, um, that there was, there was a certain group of married women. He wasn't talking to all because these have husbands that he's talking to. They have um, questions about tongues, prophecies, and who gets to go when. So he's telling them, be quiet, Sigato, just like he had told the men. And then afterwards, then he tells them, I'll be eager to prophesy, but let's get this done and decently in an order, to use the old phrase. Um, and again, that's if Paul said it. If he didn't, if he's responding to something they said, we come to the same place. Men and women can prophesy. They're allowed to. The word of God did not originate with any one person. Therefore, we're allowed to. But let's keep things orderly. Last today before, and, and we're not done. Uh, we'll, we'll come back at this next week. Paul says something in this chapter that has made people scratch their heads ever since he wrote it. He said, as the law says. There, there is no law in the Old Testament directing women to be subordinate in worship. There is none. There is no Jewish law, no, no extra biblical law we can find. We don't find, where is this coming from? There's no local law. We cannot find a Corinthian local law against women speaking out loud. And like I said, in fact, Corinthian women were known to be wild, loud, and proud. Whatever the truth is about this part of the passage, the whole of the passage is not a church law for all times, but a specific remedy for a specific problem in a specific place. And of course, the larger, the larger principle behind all of this remains. We're not to engage in disruptive behavior in worship. And I would add in anywhere else. Let's call it there. And let's come back to it next week. 
But I hope this helps somewhat to at least open the door to some new understanding. And may God bless you. May God bless all of us. Let's get Jesus right. Everything else will